Reverend Henry Venn said after the death of George Whitfield, quote, who would think it possible that a person should speak on the compass of a single week and that for years, in general, 40 hours and in very many weeks, 60 hours per week and that to thousands of people, close quote. George Whitfield preached for 33 years over 30,000 times. He averaged two to three times per day for his entire life. Approximately 10 million people heard him preach before microphones or technology. Along with numerous other preachers that God gave, such as we are hearing in these classes, along with the Wesleys, whom you'll find in your book in chapters 41 and 42, West, uh, Whitfield's chapter is 43 in your book, and a lot of what I'll say will be covered there and in other biographies. God used those preachers in unusual ways to shape the entire English-speaking world and to continue the amazing increase of education, quality of life, standard of living, political stability, and every other benefit of common grace, not to mention the extraordinary revival that was sent to churches. And I've chosen a verse to summarize George Whitfield's life with. It would be Revelation 14, 6 and 7, where John writes, I saw another angel flying in heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. That is not referring to George Whitfield, but it sounds like him. It was as if God chose Whitfield to prefigure that future prophecy that will one day happen in the end times. And George Whitfield, with his trumpet-like voice, was used by God to revitalize Whole countries, not just country, countries, multiple countries. And so the big idea that I would share with you is the English-speaking world of the 18th century was revitalized through preachers of whom George Whitfield is the first or the foremost. Let me give you now a life of George Whitfield and then close, if time permits, with six lessons from his life. The life of George Whitfield. He's born in 1714. This man is 17. What year? Who remembers? What, what year is, uh, is David Brainerd born? 1718. And Whitfield's going to be born in 1714. I believe uh, Edwards was 1703. No, that was Wesley. Wesley 1703. I think what, what Edwards was as well. Right around there. Uh, right around the time uh, that Edwards was born as well, Wesley was 11 years older than Whitfield. Charles, that was John Wesley. Charles Wesley was, uh, I think, seven or eight years older than Whitfield. And Whitfield was born into a wealthy family until his father died. He's the youngest of seven children. What would have happened if his parents had said six was enough? As a child, he would act in plays and it, he had unusual skill in drama. So much so that at 18 years old, 
He wants to go to Oxford and he would like to study a lighter subject, but he doesn't have the money. So he has to go as a private servant to the other boys. And he goes basically as the book boy and the slave to get the hot water ready for other rich students so that he can have his education. At 19 years old, he joins the Holy Club. The Holy Club was a group started by John and Charles Wesley, who, as I mentioned, were 11 and 7 years older than Whitfield. And they started this club because they saw the religious commitment of the students in Oxford University was very low. They would profess Christianity, but live in wicked ways. Just like we heard, the Indians knew about their experience with, quote, Christians. When you baptize babies, you're going to produce a society where people call themselves Christians, but don't have a high level of moral living. That was the case in Oxford. But Wesley and uh, John and Charles Wesley said, we want to start this holy club to organize and discipline our lives. And so they were called the Methodists because they would get up early. They would fight hard with their flesh and they would devote themselves to discipline. George Whitfield said, I'd like to try this as well. And so in hopes of saving his soul, he joined the club. He gave up eating fruit because fruit is pleasurable, containing sugar. He gave his money to the poor, what little money he had. He wrote, quote, I chose the worst kind of food and my apparel was plain. When he wasn't fasting, he ate, drank sugarless tea and ate black bread. Charles Wesley invited him to this meeting and gave him this little book under that chair there, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. I'd like to show you how small that little book is. And this is actually containing another book and a half in it. The Life of God and the Soul of Man. This was given to me by, by my wife for Valentine's Day. What a great wife. Get a gift like that. It's only 100 pages long. I'm sure Paul's read it. I have not yet. Have you read this, brother? Uh, the hundred pages here, and it was the converting grace that came to Whitfield's life, bringing him to Christ. After months of doubt and fear and fasting, he was converted at 20 years old, though his fasting had reduced his body to a sickly condition. And the doctors urged him, stop fasting so much. You need to eat more. You need to sleep more. Within 14 months, he was ordained as an Anglican minister. Anglican means the Church of England. We talked about this briefly in our lecture on what is the Reformation and why is it important. Anglican means the Church of England. In the 1530s, King Henry VIII said, we want to separate from Rome, and so we are going to start our own, basically, Catholic Church in England, apart from Italy and Rome. Well, he was kind of forced by political means to leave some of the doctrines of Rome, and so they have a half-Protestant, half-Catholicized church that was the Church of England. Well, when godly men were influencing the Church of England, it was better. And when sinful, wicked, unconverted men were influencing the Church of England, it was worse. Whitfield was truly converted. He was in the Church of England, and he wanted and stayed in the Church of England, as far as I know, till his death. He preached his first sermon at 21 years old in the Anglican church, and almost immediately other churches began asking him, please come preach to us, because his gifts were so clear. By the time he's 23, he had decided to be a missionary to America, 
And he's preaching already five times a week. Now you say a missionary to America, that's in 1736. So in 1736, it wasn't the country of America, it was colonies. And there were a few colonies on the east side, but the vast majority of the land was wide open. In, uh, uh, according to the European maps at that time, it would have been like going to be a missionary in India, going to be a missionary in Africa, or going to be a missionary somewhere else. He said, I want to go to America and be a missionary there. He took his first tour in America when he was 24, 23 or 24 years old. The next year he begins, he comes back to America, and that is when he was led by the man, Howell Harris, the Welsh preacher, to preach in the fields. The churches could only hold so many people. When I say so many, a couple hundred, or if you're in a large church, maybe a thousand, at the most two thousand. But the crowds were so great coming to hear Whitfield that even the largest churches couldn't contain him. And he writes in his journals, more turned away than could hear. Or in other places, people peering in the windows, trying to listen. And so Howell Harris says, go out to the field. You've got a field just outside the church that can hold everyone. Stand outside. Why stand? What's so magical uh, or Christian about standing inside four walls and letting your voice bounce around. And so he steps out and Spurgeon, 150 years later, writes, it was a brave day for England when Whitfield began field preaching. And he did begin the field preaching, preaching to 20,000 poor laborers at 24 years old in a place called Moorfields. Later that year, he takes his second preaching tour to America and meets the founding father, some of the founding fathers of America, Benjamin Franklin. He meets Jonathan Edwards, the man we'll hear about probably next week. And this is when we hear an account of how the Spirit of God worked through Whitfield. I'd like to read to you one of the most famous passages, and it's from a farmer named Nathan Cole. Nathan Cole is a farmer, and he heard, he's an American farmer, and he hears that Whitfield is coming to preach. And I'm going to read his account, and you ask yourself, have you ever heard of anything like this? Now, it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and my hearing of his preaching at Philadelphia, I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. All on a sudden, about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford yesterday and is to preach at Middleton this morning at 10 o'clock. Remember, what time is it? Eight or nine o'clock. So it's some ways away and it's now an hour before. I was in my field at work when I heard the messenger. I immediately dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home and ran through my house and bade my wife get ready quick. <laughs> to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown and ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. When my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife in the saddle and urge her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me unless I begged her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again. And so I did several times to help my horse for we had 12 miles or about 17 kilometers to ride in little more than an hour. As I reached high ground, I saw before me a cloud or fog rising up. I first thought off 
from the great river. But as I came near the road, I heard a noise like a low rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses. It arose many rods in the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came with about 20 rods of the road, I think that's about 60 meters of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And when I came nearer, it was like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another, all in a lather and with sweat. We went down with the stream. I heard no man speak a word all the way three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. Some said three or 4,000 assembled there. We got off our horses and shook off the dust. Everything, men, horses, and boats, all seemed to be struggling for life. The land and the banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles, I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. He goes on to describe, his account goes on for several pages. He goes on to describe that it was that day that he believes that God opened his heart. Have you ever heard of spiritual life like that and spiritual interest like that? You can't fake that. In a week or two, we're going to deal with Charles Finney, a man who attempted, who was so stirred up by these kinds of reports, he thought, let's see if the American ingenuity can reproduce that. You can't reproduce that without God. And that's only one of a number of accounts. In fact, Mrs. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife, Jonathan Edwards, as our dear brother just mentioned, is counted one of the greatest minds America ever saw. We'll hear about him. He was God's tool to bring revival to the east coast of America. The greatest tool. His books are still read and change people today. Edwards' wife said when she heard Whitfield preach... She thought she knew what real preaching was. Imagine that. Hearing your pastor is one of the greatest in all of America. He's your husband. And then you hear this man. And she said, just saying the word Mesopotamia, he could make people weep. She said, my husband wept nearly the entire sermon by Mr. Whitfield. Well, Mr. Whitfield goes on preaching. At 25 years old, he begins to plan for an orphanage. 27 years old, he has a controversy with John Wesley over the doctrine of election. He did not separate from Wesley, but Wesley said, I can't work with you because you believe in the doctrine of unconditional election, which I don't. Thankfully, after 10 years, they were able to minister together again. At 1741, 26 years old, 1741 November, he marries a woman 10 years older than him. Elizabeth, whom he says, she has no beauty, youth, or riches, and yet she will be a godly wife for me. He had already been rejected by a girl whom he said was beautiful, but she testified that she could not take the difficult life that he was living. So she gave him an ultimatum. I'll marry you if you back off your preaching and your traveling. And Whitfield said, 
your beauty is, I'm paraphrasing, he, did, I, this, he didn't say these words. He said, apparently in his life and in his choices, he said, your beauty is not great enough for me to change my lifestyle. He met and married Mrs. James within one week, met her, married her within one week, preaching twice on the day of his marriage. And each day of the first week of their marriage. But they did have a happy marriage. And Whitfield speaks of her in loving terms. And she spoke of him with love as well. She knew whom she was marrying. And she was prepared to live the life that he had already been living. And that he would continue. In 1741 to 1742. That is December 1741. The month after he's married. He travels to Cambuslung, Scotland, where whole books have been written about the revival there. I have one of those books, and it's hopefully going to be our children's next read aloud, unless Paul's encouragement to read Robert Moffat's Travels overcomes it. There was a great revival in Cambuslung, Scotland, when George Whitfield went there in 1741 and 1742. So much so that the preaching often went on until two in the morning. With no electricity. Whitfield said, I have preached many times by torchlight. He said, it is best to memorize your sermons in case you happen to preach after the sun has gone down. <laughs> 1742. He preaches again at Moorfields. You may recall Moorfields. It's where he began preaching when he was first, a pat, when he was first ordained to 20,000 people. He goes back to Moorfields and preaches. Moorfields was a place, maybe something today like Chicota. That is where the very poor laborers would be. And he would preach to them at 5 or 6 in the morning. Because they had to be at work at 7. He chose Moorfields. Because he said, the poor will more easily listen to me. And secondly, because they have so many sins. Quote, Whitfield writes in his journals, I was honored at Moorfields with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. His opponents sent a man with a drum, another with a trumpet, and several with whips to whip him while he was preaching. One playwright wrote a perverse play in which they mocked him and had him acting out sexual perversions. It was not him, but obviously a, a wicked man acting as him. Popular songs were written about him to mock him. And he would often hear children singing these songs to distract him while he was preaching. Once a man climbed into a tree over him and urinated on him while he was preaching. <laughs> 1743, Whitfield actually takes some of these people to court. At Hampton, they had thrown a Mr. Adams into the sewage pit twice because of his preaching. Whitfield had also been assaulted many times. And so he takes this group of people to court. This kind of treatment was very common. If you read the lives of the Methodists, I've begun the journals of John Wesley, which comes highly recommended, and I have not finished it, and I need to. It's very common in the journals of John Wesley and the other Methodist preachers because they named specific sins. I listed on my blog some time ago when I first read Whitfield's uh, biography. It's a, the biography I read was Whitfield's journals. I did not read the excellent book that my wife just gave me for my birthday, the two-volume of Whitfield's life by Dalimore. But I read his journals. Whitfield lists sins and openly commands men to stop, such as boxing, 
dancing, plays, uh, sports, cards. He's explicit on naming those sins repeatedly at different times in his life. At one point, he preaches so firmly against dancing that the dance halls closed down in a particular place where he was preaching in America. And the one man comes and says, I have my dance hall. What can I do to make a living? And Whitfield says, I'll rent it from you as a chapel. (laughs) But they name these sins specifically, and this made them very unpopular. No one sent out bad tweets about them. They just threw rocks at them. So he begins in 1743, the first Methodist denomination before John Wesley. John Wesley is given the credit because he lived another 30 years longer than Whitfield. Wesley, I'm sorry, Whitfield began the Methodist denomination first. The next year, his four-month-old son dies. Just after his son dies, he is attacked by two assassins while he's ascending the stairs to go back to his room where he was staying that night. The two assassins come and attack him. He falls down the stairs. When he tries to get up, a woman comes out and the woman fights these two assassins off. It's an amazing story. 1748 to 17, 1744 to 1748, he goes back to America for the third time. His sermons ranged from one to three hours in length and people stood or sat on the ground. They were overwhelmed with God's truth. He takes multiple trips to America, four, five, six. He preaches through the British Isles, in Scotland, in Wales, in Bermuda. He's he's told that he must go for rest to Bermuda. So while he's on rest, he preaches twice per day. Remember, he's preaching one to three hours per sermon. And this is traveling on horseback or in a carriage, not on a tar road. At 63 years old, his wife, Elizabeth, dies. 30th of September, 1770, Whitfield dies when he is 55 years old, a year and a half after his wife. The day before his death, he was weak, and yet he ascended the special pulpit that he had built for him and preached from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Many people who were there testified, I'm sorry, several people who were there testified that it was the best sermon he ever preached the day before he dies. Again, when he goes home, he is very weak. That is, he's going to die. No one else knows this, but he's very weak. He travels home. He had a man staying with him who was his, his servant and manuensis, helping him to write letters. And the man urged the people to leave the house so that Mr. Whitfield could rest. They begged him to preach to them. And so standing on the stairs just outside the door of his home, the door of his uh, house that he was staying at, he preached to a full house with the doors and windows open so that more could hear outside. He preached until his voice gave way and staggered back to bed and died the next morning. At one point in his life, he said, I don't know if this is original with him, But he said this in the 1760s. So if there's not someone before him, I would rather burn out than rust out. At his funeral, he asked John Wesley to preach. And Charles Wesley wrote a 536-line poem 
in honor of his friend. 536 lines competing with Homer, but much more profitable. George Whitfield can teach us a great many things. Let me give you a few lessons from his life. Maybe you've picked them up already. Self-denial marked Whitfield's life from childhood to death. He made it to Oxford by serving the rich boys. He gave away his furniture, even though he had little left to use when he died. He had almost nothing to his name. The immense wealth that passed through his hands, he constantly gave away because he's preaching in very large places. People would often give offerings. Powerful people heard about him. They would give him money. He gave it almost all of it away and died in near poverty with just a few books. He usually rose at 4 a.m. and often preached at 5 or 6 a.m. He was often studying very early in the morning. He commonly preached in the snow and the rain and even the hail. Sometimes, as I mentioned, he would preach while rocks were flying. This is a man who denied himself, who took up his cross daily to follow Christ. Lesson number two, in an age filled with nominal Christianity, Whitfield insisted on both true doctrine and a deep experience with grace. And somehow we've got to get this lesson into our hearts in the churches today. He writes, quote, what I've been chiefly concerned about is that no one should rest in the bare hope that they are saved without experiencing the power of grace in their own hearts. I wonder how many Afrikaners are that way. They have some kind of loose knowledge that Jesus died for me. But do you know Christ? Has grace gripped your soul? Will you say like hopeful in the Pilgrim's Progress, I wish I had a thousand lives to pour out all that blood for Christ. This man knew what it was to be dedicated. He writes in another place, quote, I find no such enemies to the cross of Christ as those who merely keep up a form of religion. They believe right notions, but they are ignorant of an experience with Jesus. These are people who call themselves Christian, and if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he died for you? Their answer to that would be yes. But I want to know, has grace shaken you to your core? Like we just heard about with Brainerd. Has grace shook you to the point you say, I am a wretch? And then you can look to Christ and say, oh, that I could love him more. Oh, that I could see him more. Oh, that he would come back today. Ritfield wrote about revival. I have always found in revival, it is like spring, many blossoms, but not always so much fruit. Sometimes people like to hear a clear speaker, a dogmatic, strong speaker, someone with a clear voice. Blossoms don't equal fruit. On his second visit to America in particular, he, he assumed pastors were unconverted Unless they gave evidence otherwise. One of his most controversial sermons in America during that trip was a sermon from John 3, You Must Be Born Again, where he explicitly made a point of asking the people to examine whether their pastors were born again. 
Whitfield, in failing health, four years before his death, wrote, quote, I am ashamed of myself. I blush and am confounded. So very little have I done or suffered for Jesus. What a poor figure I will make amongst the saints and confessors and martyrs around Christ's throne. Without some deeper signatures of his divine blessing. Without more scars of Christian honor. Tomorrow I intend to begin. To begin to be a Christian. That's four years before his death at 51 Lesson number three, preachers should pray and hope for spiritual power when they preach. What can possibly explain a man preaching for over 30 years with no media team, with no Facebook or advertisements, with word of mouth only, not being allowed to preach in most of the established churches, but having Constant audiences of 20,000. One historian said his largest crowd was 80,000. God gave Whitfield a trumpet for a voice, but that can't explain it. It can't explain the fact that he could preach to as many as can fill a soccer field without a microphone. That doesn't explain it. As Phillips says, the man who edited his journals Quote, no phrase appears in the journals of George Whitfield as often as, quote, preached with much power or preached with some power. Close quote. Whitfield even writes about that. He was not afraid to say, I preached with power today because he says, if it had any source in myself, it might be pride. But if it is entirely a, entirely a gift from another, it can't be pride. He said he was merely acknowledging that God was pleased to save people through his preaching. And then the Cambuslung revival in Scotland that I mentioned, he preaches three times a day on the first day he arrives in Scotland. They don't know exactly when he's going to get there. There's no cell phones. He arrives and preaches to thousands three different times on his first day. The last sermon of his first day ended at 11 o'clock p.m. Then his friend began preaching, as I mentioned, until 2 o'clock in the morning. That weekend, he preached to 20,000 people in a field and wrote, In my prayer alone, I felt the power of God come down and was greatly helped. Then in my two sermons, there was even more power. You might have seen thousands bathed. In tears, people sat unwearied until two o'clock in the morning. Do you pray for your pastor? Do you meet with God's people when they pray and plead, God, send this. I know he's not perfect. This guy's got how many imperfections? This guy has how many more? Whitfield had problems. I'll list some in the next lesson. But God was pleased through broken, imperfect tools to send his power. It's as Spurgeon said, if a carpenter can make a chair with broken tools, how much more honor to the carpenter? If God can save people through him or through you or through me, pray to God that he would break through and have mercy and open up the, the, the gates of heaven to pour down a blessing. 
The chief marks of revival under Whitfield were these, five of them. Have you ever seen revival? Number one, a melting down of all classes and ages in concern for their salvation. Have you ever seen that at your church? The church didn't afterwards, hey, how are you? How are things going? All classes and ages were concerned about their salvation. Number two, an absorbing sense of eternity. Number three, humility and self-condemnation. That's Whitfield writing about the time this gentleman dies. Sounds like they were very similar. Number four, private and corporate prayer. Prayer as a church and prayer at home. And number five, concern for the souls of others. Those are the five marks of revival. If you want to know what revival is, it has nothing to do... It has nothing to do with falling on the ground or miracles. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. Revival are those things, those spiritual marks of power. Fourth lesson. Those five again. A melting down of all classes and ages in concern for their salvation. Number two, an absorbing sense of eternity. These are all from George Whitfield, by the way, as recorded by Philip. Number three, Humility and self-condemnation. Number four, private and corporate prayer. Number five, concern for the souls of others. In other words, the book of Acts. How will you know revival has come? When you're overwhelmed with heaven and Christ and God and hell. When sin and righteousness occupies your mind. Lesson number four, God uses broken tools. I I don't want to mention any of the weaknesses of God's great servants. Unless there could be some good, and I think there might be this good. We might say, okay, then though I am a great sinner, perhaps he can use me. Whitfield was a baby baptizing Anglican. He was wrong in baptism and he was incorrect about the order of the church. He did not fight to end the slave trade. In fact, he purchased slaves. He did love them and took great care of them and led many of them to Christ, but he owned slaves. Number three, he did not spend much time with his family. Number four, when he did have a chance to support the conservatives in Scotland who were fighting against a wicked state church, he chose to side with the path that would give him a greater crowd rather than helping The Erskine brothers who were the conservatives fighting. It was a bad decision. Finally, even Whitfield admitted later in life, I have often made too many decisions by impression. And you can deduce from that then he thinks I should have reflected better. Now I I can balance all of those. What would you have done in any of those cases? Had you been a man called upon to preach day and night constantly, thousands of people urging you, you can't go to your house without finding 50 people standing at the windows, knocking on the door saying, preach, preach. Not much time for reflection. Yet regardless of those errors, God was pleased to give divine power. And that's the lesson here in this fourth lesson. Number five. Lesson number five. Jesus Christ's honor And the souls of men were the supreme objects of his affections. 
the man who was at his deathbed, Cornelius Winter, who stayed with him for a number of years and traveled everywhere with him, his servant wrote just after his death, quote, I hardly ever knew him go through a sermon without weeping. Sometimes he exceedingly wept, stamped loudly and passionately, and was frequently so overcome that for a few seconds you would suspect he never could recover. And when he did, nature required some little time to compose himself. Once Whitfield said while preaching, quote, You blame me for weeping, but how can I help weeping when you will have no tears for yourselves, although your own immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? And for all I know, you are hearing your last sermon and may never more have an opportunity to have Christ offered to you. Do any of us love souls? Do any of us love our own mothers? How many of us have unconverted parents or relatives? May God give us this kind of affection for dying sinners. Number six, Whitfield held the same doctrine, practice, and schedule for his entire Christian life. He arrived at conversion early on and basically did not change any points for 30 years. Whitfield arrives at his doctrine at the beginning and basically I could give his life. If you noticed, if you go back and look at the recording, I spent a majority of my time in the biography covering the first about five years of his ministry. And then I covered the last 20 years of his ministry in just a few minutes because he just repeats. In one sense, it's just playing the same song over again. What's the name of this village? I don't know. Well, I'm sure there's 10,000 people who will come. And how many hundreds to be converted? Preaching, travel, persecution, and popularity. His schedule of early rising, constant preaching was held without interruption nearly his entire life, except for a few brief times where he rested for sickness. And God chose to reveal himself through that man to England. And because of the awakening that you read about in this book, Chapters 41, 42, 43, and 44, not just Whitfield, but Whitfield was, I believe, the most dogmatic, most useful, most widely known, most beloved, most effective of the men God used during that time. And just a few years after his death, Carey is converted. And as I studied both Carey's life and Whitfield's life, which I've read more than one biography of each, I have seen a direct connection between the spiritual revival that Whitfield strengthened and the conversion of Carey. And from Carey's conversion and from Brainerd, a branching out into the modern missions movement. So I wonder if it is not, if it is not too much to say that the Tsongas and Vendas who are converted today and the Shonas can in some sense say, we could look back to Whitfield even as a spiritual father because of his influence on England and the branching out from England to the whole world. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that your spirit would come and bless Whitfield's life to our lives and make us more teachable. Awaken in us zeal and eagerness. May we be wholehearted and dedicated. In Christ's name, amen.